Amen, amen. We'll dismiss uh, kindergarten and first graders to the back. If they have not already gone, they can head that direction. The rest of you guys, second through fifth, kiddos are in here with us. We do have a few packets if you need one. Um, I think we can probably scrounge you up one there in the back. And the reason we made a slight shift, they were ready to teach you guys back there, but I want us in here today as we talk about everybody worshiping. Because, kiddos that are in here, there's a little something I need you to help your parents do this week, and we're going to talk about, about, about that here in a minute. If you brought a Bible with you, and I hope you did, would you open to John uh, chapter 4? That's going to be our text today. As we are continuing in a series called Everybody Worsh, uh, every, uh, everybody in, all in, and today our focus is everybody worships. As I talk about worship today, I think if I was a little smarter, maybe we should have started with everybody worships because as I've studied this week, Worship is, is the thing, worship is the posture of our heart that motivates all effective Christian action. Everything else we've talked about, we've talked about everybody gives and everybody prays and everybody walks with God and everybody serves and uh, everybody shares and everybody walks in the light. We've, we've, we've talked about all these things and rightly so. Those are the fruits of a heart that's been changed on the inside outwardly displaying the glory of God to the watching world, but it starts in the heart. Worship is the soil out of which all meaningful Christian endeavors grow. Evangelism begins with worship. Teaching and preaching, again, begins with worship. Prayer and generosity and serving and discipleship and missions, confession and kindness, patience, and everything else starts with a heart of worship. When it's done God's way, it all begins and ends with worship. Without worship, we are simply religious people just working at religious tasks. But worship is the motivation that turns every task into a demonstration of love for the glory of God. Now, the case is you were wired for this. You were wired, literally made up to worship. You were made to reflect glory. God made you specifically to reflect his glory back to him. You, in a sense, are a mirror. Just as the moon would reflect uh, the light of the sun, you were made to reflect back to the Lord and to all creation the glory of the one in whom you've made. However, God gave us a choice. And many of us choose wrongly what we worship. See, everybody worships either God or something else. When you hear the word worship, what do you think of? Some may think of Sunday. Maybe you even said this morning, hey, babe, we got to go. Worship starts at 1030. Or maybe you said to your, one of the kids said, I hope we sing gratitude and worship this morning. Or maybe you have a playlist on your phone that's called lit worship or little fire emojis next to it, Right. But worship is more than a Sunday, and worship is more than music, and worship is more than singing. Worship is a whole life response to the glory and grace of God. We were created to reflect. All of us mirrors, not just the church people, not just the saved people, all people, we reflect what we admire. We are worshiping and you're killing it. You're doing a great job at worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? This quote by G.K. Beale I've been looking at all week. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. We resemble what we revere. Just a little bit of time with you and I can tell what you revere. And in this day and age, it's funny that all of our devices tell on us what we revere. I could look at your so social media feeds and see what that, go that goes on. If you're daring enough, you can look back and just see how much time you spent on that little device. To this. And you can tell what you can check your bank accounts. You can look at your calendar and see what takes 
priority to you, you can easily tell what you revere. And what I'm saying today and scripture saying today is we resemble what we revere. This word worship is a shortened form of an old English word called worthship is how they said it. And we like to shorten that and make it a little easier to say. We say worship, but it's really worthship, and it literally means to give something worth, to demonstratively attribute value. That's what it says in the dictionary, especially to a deity or to a god. And you might say, well, Luke, I'm not, at a, I'm not a, an emotive person. I don't worship. Oh, you worship. You give worthship to something because that's how you were made. That's how every human soul in this room that will ever listen to this on the face of the earth, that ever walked to the face of the earth, this is how we were made. We were made to reflect. We were made to give something worth. We are constantly communicating value or passion or worthness to all kinds of things in our lives. For this in the fall, for some of us, it's college football. In my neighborhood, we have a guy in the quarter who's a big Florida Gator fan. And he only does this during football season, but every Saturday when the Gators are playing, he has an inflatable Gator he puts out there. He sits it right on his front porch, and everybody that drives past knows he's into the Florida Gators. Communicating to anyone who might drive by, I am a fan of the Florida Gators, intentionally attributing value. Some of you say, well, I'm not into college football. Can we talk about Taylor Swift for a moment? Guys, Swifties in the room? Taylor, if you're listening, I admire your work. You gave some bad theology, but there's some things that are going on. She's on a tour right now called the Errors Tour. Maybe you're called up in the, anybody get, get to go? Anybody in this room get to go? I read this week that she's going to make $2 billion with a B dollars in this one tour. $2 billion. She's going to add $5 billion to the global economy. They made historic records in both Philadelphia and Chicago, the most hotel rooms ever sold for one event. Can you imagine that? All the World Series, all the games, all the World's Fair. I mean, I mean can you imagine? The, all the things they've hosted, they set records for Ares Tour. And now maybe you're watching... Maybe, maybe some of you ladies got introduced to football because of her, uh, her, her thing with Travis Kelsey, right? This is where, like, do they have a one-word name or, like, Benifer? Do they have a thing that's not happening yet? It's not a – we need to – that would be easier than to say in Travis and Tay-Tay. Listen, I'm into it. I'm into it. Yeah, this, this guy's got skills, man. This demonstrably attributing value. We could keep going. Maybe that's not my thing, but it's hunting. It's been thousands of years, and every weekend during the fall, you're hunting. Or maybe it's fantasy football or Fortnite or the metaverse or Fox News or politics. We could talk long enough, and we can get on your thing. <laughs> to take it a little more serious, some of you have lost, lost relationships because of what you worship. Some of you have lost some of your family, some of you have lost your jobs because of misplaced worship. Now, most of these things in and of themselves are neutral. It's when we ascribe more worth to them than they can hold that they begin to break down in what Scripture calls idolatry. True worship is what we ascribe the highest value to. And my main point this morning, and I'm just going to give you a heads up, we're going to go a little long today because we're trying to cover a lot today. We're also, at the end of the service, we're going to uh, ordain Eric Zimmer. It's going to take just a minute at the very tail end of the service, and I, I hope you'll stay with us. I had the hardest time today, this week, figuring out where we were going to go with this sermon because I literally think that we could take a thousand sermons and talk about this idea of worship. As I was reading just through scripture, it's in every book of the Bible. It's in the Torah. It's in the wisdom literature. It's in the prophets. It's in the gospels. It's in the epistles. It, the, the very end of Revelation shows this picture of us worshiping the Son. 
It's literally everywhere. I'm going to start with Jesus' words, and then we're going to flip over to Psalms 148 that uh, Emily read. But if you're in John 4, this is a passage some of you might be familiar with. Jesus is speaking. Uh, the title in my Bible says, Woman at the Well, the Samaritan Woman. Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and he's called some of his disciples, and uh, he's out doing the things that Jesus does. He's bringing the kingdom. He's announcing the good news. He's healing people. He's giving us a picture of what it means for heaven to literally invade earth. And while he's headed, he goes through Samaria, and that was something that Jews never did. They took the long way, added a couple of days to their journey, but they hated the Samaritans. They were really enemy number two for the Jews. Enemy number one was tax collectors. We talked about them last week. These were a close second. They hated the Samaritans. But Jesus, a good Jew, we see that even in this passage, walks directly through uh, Samaria. He finds this woman at the well in the middle of the day, likely because she didn't want to see anyone. Not because he's necessarily an introvert, but she was living a life even outside of the cultural norms for Samaritan women. So she was just probably on the outside of any relational kind of thing. She's trying to avoid, you know, you got those people you try to avoid at Target, right? Okay, she's trying to do this. She's trying to avoid everyone. The text said she'd been married several times and she was shacking up with a current man. And Jesus engages her with the most incredible, uh, the incredible interaction. I want you to go back and read it if you, if you have time later. The, she ends up finding living water. She's converted. She goes back to her hometown, becomes this incredible evangelist. But within this story, Jesus gives us this little sermonette on worship, again, that we could preach a thousand sermons on. Jump in with, in verse 19, and then I want to pray, and then I want to talk about three things that worship is. Verse 19 of John chapter 4, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, you might underline that, true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want to pray for us, and I want you to pray silently right where you're at. Would you just ask the Lord to speak to your heart about what it looks like for you to worship in spirit and in truth this morning? God, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts that we would understand, would you make the, the, the very word, your word, come alive to us. That it would bring conviction and restoration and encouragement to our hearts. That it would reorient us to the right direction and the right way that we would walk with you in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, kiddos who are in the room, I would love to see your picture after this of this story. This story of this woman at this well and Jesus talking about worship. What does that look like to you? Maybe draw with a pen. I would love to see what you come up. What, what does worship look like? First thing that Jesus points at is as he's looking for true worshipers. There is a such thing as worshiping the wrong thing. We've already covered that. Again, you were made to reflect the divine nature that you were created in. Created in the image of God to reflect back to him. The only one who's worthy of the glory and weightiness of everything in life. The only one who's worthy. We sang just a minute ago to the Lord. Lord, you are worthy of it all. created in the image of God to reflect back to him his very own glory. This is what it means when the psalmist says, let's bless the Lord, that we ascribe back to him his worthness. Listen, when we put God in the margins of our lives, when we add him to our schedules with a if I have time kind of clause, when we say we're spending time with him but we never focus on him, we're really playing pretend. Did your kids ever play pretend? My two girls used to love to do this. And even Hudson got, got in the mix, right? They, we had this little 
Fisher-Price kitchen that had little fake food and little fake burgers. Y'all remember the fake burgers? Y'all remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they, my girls would put on little aprons and create a menu, and they would come in, and they would say, I would like steak and potatoes. Sorry, we don't have that. We, we had only what the fake food we had. We had burgers and carrots or something. I don't remember what it was, and that's what was on the menu, and that's what you got. And they would run off and they would assemble the fake food and they would bring you the fake food and you would play along and you would take the little fake food and num, num, that's delicious. And they would literally charge you money. They just had a racket going and they put so much hard work into the fake food. I feel like we should give them a little something. But in the end, no one was filled. No appetite satisfied. It was fake. And so many Christians, even Christians in this room today, we've misplaced our worship. We've ascribed the glory that was intended for God. This is in Paul's letter. This is what he says that took the things that were intended for God and we, we gave that worship to inanimate things, to things that, can't hold anything to things that can't speak back to us. This happens when we're focused on the wrong thing. This is what she was focused on. She's like, hey, I see you're a prophet. You're a pretty smart guy. What mountain are we supposed to be worshiping on? This was this debate. The Samaritans had changed the, the, the they had changed the scripture and they said that uh, there was this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that Moses had been up one time and said, this is where we worship and this is, this is where we should worship. And convenient for them, that's the land that they lived in, that this is the word, so this is where we're supposed to go. And then all the Jews are like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not it. And so there was this big battle and argument of contention every time. What mountain are we supposed to worship on? And, Jesus says, listen, friend, you, do, you don't even know who you're worshiping. Jesus said to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You don't even know who you're worshiping. I see so much of this. I see it in our church. I see it in our culture. I see it in my own life, if I'm honest. People claiming they worship a God that they invented of their own making. A God that's easy for them to love because he looks exactly like them. Totally dismissing the word of God that tells us who God is. True worshipers, Jesus says. That's what the Lord is seeking. There's a kind of worshiper that the Father is seeking today. That's what he says. He says at the end of verse 23, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. There's a lot of people claiming they worship, but the Father is seeking true worshipers. And I'm not talking about music styles. Real worship doesn't even need music. There are underground churches meeting in Myanmar and in China today, and they're, they're worshiping in a basement, and they can't have any music, and they are whisper singing the great hymns of the faith because they can't get too loud, so they get arrested, and then their pastor will likely be in prison and maybe even executed, so they can't even, so there's no music. And yet they are bringing to heaven this, this chorus of worship. Thinking about the day that they'll be able to exuberantly express their gratitude and love for God for the top of their voices, but they're still worshiping. Jesus tells us the kind of worshipers he's looking for, and they're not the most emotive or the best singers or musicians. I mean, our, our praise, our worship through song today was incredible. He tells us two things about worship. Real worship does not require sanctuaries nor the customs or traditions of men. 
But the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking are those that worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit means that you're, you're concerned with spiritual realities, not so much with places or outward sacrifices or cleansing or the right clothing. You know, growing up, I had, I had church clothes that you wore to church. You have church clothes? They were mostly too small and uncomfortable or they were way too big because they were hand-me-downs and you only wore them to church and you got in trouble if you played after church and you messed up your church clothes. And I understand, I do think there's, there's an element of, of, of bringing our, our best when we come to the Lord. But I think it also created this like division between showing up on a Sunday and all of life. To worship in spirit means that that it's not about the trappings, it's not about the sacrifices, it's not about the cleansings, it's not about the right standing and sitting. Friends, God cares more about your heart than he does your hymns. He cares more about your heart. To worship from the heart, from your spirit, not posing, not acting. Enough with all the formalities of it all. God deserves, desires worshipers who worship in spirit, meaning that God's looking at your heart. Paul says you can have the most incredible spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. That you could, you could speak with tongues like angels. I don't even know what that means. But you can speak with tongues, but have not love. And you are a noisy gong and a loud cymbal. You're, you're a drum that's, that's off beat. You're, if we gave you all tambourines this morning and all of us white folk have got no rhythm and we're trying to do something and it would just be terrible. Like we, I, I can't even clap and sing. I, I just, I can't do it. It's just not, it's not in me. This is what the Lord is hearing when we worship and we say all the right songs and we hit the right key and we know when to stand and we sit and we came and we're, we're here, but our heart is not with God. Jesus would call the Pharisees who externally worshiped amazingly. He called them whitewashed tombs. You look so pretty on the outside, bro, but inside I can smell the stench. Matthew 5 says, listen, this is how much Jesus cares about this. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you come to worship to bring your gift and you realize that you have someone that you have something against or someone has something against you, meaning there's a division in the relationship, that I'd rather you not even bring the gift. Leave the gift, bro. Go and restore the relationship because that's what's going to actually tune your heart to God and we worship from the heart. And once you got that thing and you've apologized and you've restored the best you can and you cried and snot bubbled and hugged it out, then I want you to come back. And that's when you bring the gift because that's when heaven is going to hear the gift. Does that make sense? If you come with, with the wrong heart, trying to impress someone next to you, or because this is just what we've always done, you, you, miss, you, miss the whole, you miss the whole point. It's not the sacrifice, it's your obedience from the heart. I was serving at a church during worship wars. Anybody? Late 90s? I hear people all the time that are like, yeah, no, I was born in, you know, 2003. I was like, dude, we're the same age. How were you born in 2003? Well, in the late 90s, there was this thing called the worship wars. And people were arguing about what, what kind of worship. We got drums on the stage. That's demonic. Can't have that. I think those people missed all the psalms. Every other psalm is like, man, bring out the lyre. Bring out the harp. Bring out these instruments. I don't know. Somebody start banging on the gongs. Somebody dance before the Lord. And, you know, us. Grew up Baptist, we're like, yeah. He's, he's, he means metaphorically, man, metaphorically. We got to sing the hymns. What about all the psalms that says sing a new song? Like literally, that literally in the Hebrew means a new song. No, it's, it's the, we were fighting about all these things, and you know what our worship to heaven was? A, 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 a loud gong, noisy cymbals. God's not hearing any of, you, any of it. I don't care if you sing... Michael W. Smith or, or the Gaithers. It, it does not matter. It's worship from a true heart. Do you get it? We missed it. We even created new services. We went to several churches I worked at. We created multiple services to make everybody happy. If you come to this, this is the contemporary service. This is me. We're going to use electric drums and we're going to turn them up just a little bit. Just a little bit. 
Like those things sound terrible. I'm sorry, Lord. What did we do? What did we do? It's about the response to who God is. True worship in a true spirit and in a spirit of truth, he says. True worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in truth means that you're worshiping according to the whole counsel of God's word, especially in light of the New Testament revelation of who God is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We look at Jesus and we know who God is. And based upon what we know of who God is and how he has created and sustained everything that our heart cries out in worship to who he is. This is, we ascribe worship to him. This is why we let the Bible direct and inspire our worship. See, the Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Scripture. They rejected the rest. They took as much of the Scripture as they wished, and they paid no attention to the rest. Does that sound like modern culture today? And Jesus made clear in his interaction, you don't even know what you're doing. You don't even know who you're worshiping. At least the Jews know who they worship. But then he promised this greater thing. It's not always going to be about a place. It's about a person. It's about knowing who God is and how he loves you and cares for you. This is why we let the Bible direct and inspire our worship, why our praise songs and our prayers should involve scripture as we pray and sing back to God his very inspired words. That's why I like the all creatures we sang today. So many of the songs that Rachel diligently picks out are just packed with scripture. We're singing God's truth back to him. It also means that we come in truth, not in a pretense or mere display of spirituality. We bring our truthful selves, not our pretend selves. Worshiping the true God as revealed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And this is who we bring. Say, Luke, I don't always feel like it. Well, of course you don't. We live in a dark world with bad things and difficult things and confusing things. And we've been praying prayers and we've not got answered and, and, and we don't understand it. That's why Jesus uses this word worship. It's the Greek word proneo, proskuno, sorry, proskuno. It appears 59 times in the New Testament. It's made up of two words, pros, which means coming towards, and kuneo, to kiss, to worship, to show respect, to fall prostrate before, to literally kiss towards someone, to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage, to bow down and kiss toward most of the Greek culture where was a near Eastern culture. Maybe you've seen this in movies. And if you ever approached a royalty, you would, you would lay down in front of them. You might kiss their ring or kiss their feet. You, just, you would know who they were and you would know who you were in relation to that. You would get low. It's a sign of respect. It was a sign of worthiness. Jesus says worship is not about where but who. It's not about a place but a person. Worship is not about singing, but it's about seeing. And when you see God high and lifted up, it moves your heart to worship. The psalmist understood this. When we worship things that can't uphold our worship or things that don't deserve our worship, again, the Bible calls this idolatry. When we worship career or family or money or status or power or comfort or safety, when we make those things our ultimate pursuit, they're going to fall under the weight of what we have placed on them, like trying to build a house on ice. It's not going to work. You might get a few two-by-fours up. You might be able to spend the night there, but it's not going to last. Worship starts with seeing. For the rest of my sermon today, I want to give us a biblical overview of worship because who we worship really does matter. Here's the point. If you don't hear anything else, worship starts with seeing. This is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that that God would open the eyes of their heart. Why would he say that again and again? We sing that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. 43,000 times we would sing that phrase. And I would say, I think the Lord hears it. I think we're good. We don't have to keep. But most of us didn't get it. The eyes of our heart never got open because we kept worshiping everything that we could see and touch. And we never worshiped him. We kept worshiping all the created things and not the one who created those very things. When I get into the presence of God, if I can be honest with you, I become childlike again. 
Everything else in my life becomes secondary to worshiping God. Every stress and every worry and every concern, every task on my to-do list, every burden, everything that crowds out the childlike wonder to know and praise God, I'm reminded in that moment. This morning, staying in a borrowed lake house for a couple weeks while my house is doing some renovations to my house and you can see the lake and you can see the sunrise over the lake. And I was supposed to be working on my PowerPoint, but I was looking at that and I was singing some Psalms live, Shane and Shane, and looking at the sunrise. Bro, we had church up in that lake house today. I was like, ooh, I got to get this PowerPoint done. All the things I was supposed to do, they just left. And just for a moment, and childlike wonder. You know, childlike wonder, when you take a kid to the store and they don't think about your budget, they think about the candy. They, you take them to Disney World or Six Flags. It's, it's not about, okay, Dad, I think we've had enough. More, 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 more. This is the childlike wonder when we get in the presence of God. Just can't ever be enough. Flip over, if you will, to Psalms 148. See, I was created to worship the Lord. It's my job. It's my purpose. It's my joy. In Psalms 148, we see we see the choir of creation all praising God, joining in a chorus of worship. Look at it with me quickly. He starts Psalms 148, praise the Lord, exclamation point. This is not a Presbyterian, hey, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. The word for praise being used is the Hebrew word halal. Maybe we sang it today, hallelujah. It's translated in every language the same way. It's the only word that's transliterated that way. Hallelujah is the same here and in Spanish and French. It's hallelujah. Hallel means to give foolish praise or Ultimate praise, Uyah is the, is the name for God, Yahweh, to put those together, hallelujah, which is to give ultimate or to give foolish praise to Yahweh God. Hallelujah. When we sing that, that's with our, 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 our mouths and our minds and our hearts that we're claiming together, maybe we should have told you this before you sang it, ultimate praise to you, Lord, ultimate, all, all the praise that I can muster, everything that I have to you, Lord. It's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament, particularly wide in meaning, interpreted differently in some places. Sometimes it's translated to shine or to celebrate in other places. It's just worthy of praise. We see the same word used of David as he makes foolish praise to the Lord when he danced before the parade and the Ark of the Covenant. Man, would that not have been a spectacle. It means making more of God no matter how foolish it makes you look. Maybe in a worship service like this and God's moving in your heart and you, the only posture that you can even think about is to get on your knees or to raise your hands high or to sit there and weep. It doesn't matter the posture. To give him the great hallel, the hallelujah, is to give everything you have to him no matter the posture. No matter how foolish, it's to praise and to boast and to celebrate, to clamor foolishly, King James says. To make a show. All offered in an attitude of delight, to be bright, to be splendid, to be praised, to be famous, to cause to shine onto, to make bright, to give light, to deserve praise. Foolish praise. Somebody's like, well, well, I just don't do that in church. Why? You do that in other environments? You do that when you go to the football game? I went to the local high school football game. And every touchdown we made, I jumped up out of my seat and screamed as high. I don't really have a kid out there. I'm, cheer I'm making foolish praise. I remember going to an LSU game my first time as a seventh grader. This was in our really, really bad years, playing Colorado and watching all those people 
chant and sing and the band go and people painting their faces and throwing things. I mean, foolish praise. Then we got to high school and I went to, had a buddy who went there and I went to him and I joined in the chorus. I painted the face and I threw the things and I said that that's to give foolish praise. I don't even remember if we lost or won. I don't remember. This week, we watched Hudson play soccer. I don't even know what his team's called. I just call him the blue team. It's just like it changes all the time. It's this is a blue team. Hudson's on the blue team. And they're playing little rec soccer. And I'm losing my mind. We won the game. Is that our first one we won? It's the first one I've been to we won. I screamed like a crazy man. I mean, me and Ashley both, if you're sitting around us, you would think that we thought this was the Super Bowl. To clamor foolishly. Friends. If we can scream at the top of our lungs to Taylor Swift songs, and if we can shout and spend money and paint our face, if we can do all these things for things that we don't even, we don't even know if they won. And yet we come to the God who has created everything. Our worship is off. He continues in verse 2, praise him all ye angels. Look at it starting in creation. Praise him all his hosts. Hundreds of thousands of angels singing and praising God. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him you shining stars. Praise him in the, you highest heavens. And you waters above the heavens. See, he started in the highest place as he could look up as high as he could see. There's heaven up there. Rain clouds up there. There's stars and sun and moon. And he said, all of the galaxies. What does Psalms 19 say? They, they proclaim the work of God's hand. Romans says that none of the world is, I mean, all the world is without excuse because they see creation. And they know there's a creator deep in their DNA. They were wired to worship him. Starting in the highest of the galaxies and stars, y'all worship the Lord, praise the Lord. Notice it has no conditions. Angels, praise him if you feel like it. Sun and moon, if you're having a good day. Highest heavens, if, there's, if, if you're feeling good about things. Not if you feel close or feel grateful. This is a command, praise the Lord. And then it gives us the first reason that we should praise the Lord in verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass. Isn't that amazing? In the beginning, before time was even there and there was nothing. Back in Genesis and the origin story and God spoke. His spirit hovered. He opened his mouth and out come flying stars and planets and galaxies. Billions and billions of stars. The sun and the moon. Just speaking it. The first reason that we worship the Lord is because he created and he sustains everything. He established them, look at it, forever and ever. This was not a fifth grade science project where we made the lava come out of the top of the thing and it broke before we got to show it. This is not that thing. He created and sustains it. Colossians says that he's holding everything together with the word of his power, even right now. Isn't that incredible? With a word, he spoke everything into existence. He continues to hold it. Next, from the heavens, everything above us to the death. Look at verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. He's talking about Nessie there, sea creatures, Nessie. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy and wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and all flying birds. All of nature, they join the chorus of worship of the great creator and our great king. As a matter of fact, in Luke 19, Jesus, uh, the Pharisees come and said, hey, you got to tell the disciples not to do this. They're not doing it right. And Jesus says, listen, if my disciples close their mouths, the very rocks that you're walking on are going to start worshiping me. What does that look like? I have no idea. Or what it sounds like. Can you imagine? 
See, God doesn't need you. If you fail to worship, the rocks will do it. But God will be worshiped. Verse 11, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. One of the reasons I want the kids in here today, I want you to hear this call to worship, kids, that the world is going to tell you to worship so many other things and that everything is better than Jesus. They're going to say you just want need this and you need to try this. And if it's your career or it's money or it's drugs or whatever they're going to put in front of you, Jesus is so much better, kids. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. We praise him first because he created and sustained every, sustains everything, but also because he's the only one worthy of ultimate praise. His name alone, his majesty alone, greater than the most transcendent thing that you can even imagine. His name is higher than the heavens. He is outside of time. Who is there like our God? The psalmist says, no one's like our God. We praise him because his, he alone is worthy of ultimate praise. And then verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. This is the third reason, because he has raised up the horn. Now, at cursory reading, you might not understand that. That was speaking uh, specifically about the actual ram's horn that they would blow in victory. And they knew and that they had trumpets, they had other instruments, but that one sound, when that ram's horn blew, they knew the battle had been won. He's raised up a horn that's literally, but metaphorically, he's talking to the coming, about the coming Jesus. This becomes a messianic psalm. Meaning, pointing to Jesus. And then Luke 1 uh, verse 69, Simeon, who's in the temple, and he, he sees Jesus in the flesh. And he cries out in his song of praise to God that he uses the term horn of salvation. It's also in Zechariah's prophecy when he speaks of Jesus. The Old Testament language is deployed to a reference of Jesus. Christ as the strong one of God. That he becomes the fulfillment of all, you know, all the Psalms that say, you are my refuge, you're my strength, you're my rock, you're my Ebenezer. Jesus became all those things. Jesus would, 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 would be the one who became our rock and our fortress and our deliverer and our shield and our refuge. He is the great horn of salvation. Our great father knew that we would not worship the right things properly because of sin. We would worship nearly everything but him at times, even our own things. We worship the things that he created instead of him. This seems so ridiculous on the surface. Who would worship things instead of the one who gave them that thing? I had a birthday this week and my family gave me some new shoes. You know you're getting old when you're like, I just want comfortable shoes. Comfortable and stylish. But we had to pick one. Let's go comfortable. We got to get comfortable shoes. But when I got those shoes, I didn't get on cloud on the phone and be like, hey, I want to thank you for making such a great product. No, no, I told my family thank you. Because they went through the work. Not the created things. The people of God have a history of this, worshiping the created things. I mean, God had no more saved them out of Egypt for a minute. Moses goes up to get the law of God on tablets. They can hear the thunder. And Moses up there like, we don't know what's going on, but this God feels really distant. Hey, let's melt our earrings and make a golden calf. That sounds cool because they just really wanted a steak, I guess. I don't know what it means. I mean, I've had good steaks, but not enough to eat. Um, they melted the stuff down. They created it, and God was so upset with them. He told Moses, you got to... They're, they're worshiping created things again. And we don't do golden calves, but we do countertops and lifted up trucks and vacations, our kids' successes, 
it was easier for them to worship what they could see, even if they made it with their own hands in a God they didn't understand. But the call of the psalmist here is one of focus. Friends, worship the Lord because he alone is worthy. He's the creator and sustainer. He's the only one worthy, but more than that, he's the redeemer and the judge. That there's coming a day when Jesus will return and he will set everything that has been wronged right. That he even now is making all things new in his own words. Just the fact that we breathe air and we see the work of creation should stir up in us such a heart of worship. This is why I love to go to the beach. Just staring at its vastness and thinking of the God that created the boundaries of the sea, tells Job, it makes me feel small. It makes me feel right-sized. Sometimes I think of myself too much and my problems too much and my issues too much and my dreams too much. And I get mad at God when they don't play out like I want them to, if I'm honest. There's been moments in my life where I've actually withheld worship from God because he didn't answer the prayer like I wanted him to answer the prayer. You ever done that? When life is hard and when the difficulties are many, when I didn't understand. But this is what faith is, friend. What real worship is, what worshiping in spirit and truth, we, we bow down. We remember that God is good and powerful and he knows and I don't have to understand all that he's doing to worship him. Sometimes it's a real sacrifice of praise. Notice too the Hillel in this passage in Psalms 148, like in most of our Psalms, is a command. It's a command for this very reason because sometimes we don't feel like it. Even when you don't feel like praising, friend, you should praise. Even when you don't feel like worshiping, friend, you should worship. You should praise the Lord in the command. It's like an action that he says, jump or speak. He says, praise the Lord. The psalmist is commanding us to praise the Lord even when we don't feel like it, especially when we don't feel like it. Sometimes the psalmist will tell his own soul to praise the Lord, like in Psalms 105. You'll hear it a lot of times, praise the Lord, oh my soul. David saying, I really don't feel like this. And this has been a hard day and there's a lot of things I don't understand and I'm tired and it's just not working. I don't understand what God's doing. Soul, get out of the funk, man. It's time to praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's why worship isn't limited to emotion. Many times we praise with our minds. We remember that God is the one who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence. He created the world. He's right now sustaining the world. His name alone is worthy of our worship. So even when I don't feel like it, even when our souls are tired, and even when we don't understand everything, especially when our circumstances are bleak. You ever notice this in Psalms? Read the Psalm you see that. He'll, he'll tell you everything bad that's happening and how he's cried himself sleep every night and his sons hate him and his enemies after him, all the things. And then he says, the last like, yet I will hope in the Lord. Yet I will praise the Lord. This is a guy who's worshiping in spirit and truth. He's not being a fake guy. He's not saying, hey, my life is really, is really bad, but I'm going to turn that frown upside down and I'm going to come in and I'm going to praise the Lord. He's not acting. He's not posing. What he's doing is offering a sacrifice of praise, saying everything is really difficult and I don't understand it and my, my heart hurts and I'm praying for this and that and it's not working out. But yet, just because I don't understand everything doesn't mean I can't praise the Lord. Does that make sense? Habakkuk 3, going through a famine. Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines. They're in a downturn. The economy's gone bad. The inflation's high. People have lost their jobs. People aren't even eating. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, meaning it died. There's no herd in the stalls. I check my bank account and it's empty. My doctor gives me a bad report. This is the life of Job. My friends all left me. Things are so difficult and my life is so miserable. And yet he says, Job says, right? He gives and takes away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what Habakkuk is saying here in verse uh, 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Amen. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He places me, he makes me tread on my high places. I feel like I should get this tattooed on my forehead. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm not doing that, but if I did, it would be a great reminder to me, and I hope it's a reminder to you. When we choose to worship and praise, even when our circumstances are difficult, even when we don't understand, even when our prayers seem unanswered, we are realigning ourselves in the right order of God's design for worship. We are becoming, in that moment, true worshipers. Most of us worship by God's hand and not God's heart. We want to worship when he does the things we want him to do, when, when he answers the prayer, when a random check comes in the mail, when our wife is treating us well or our husband's treating us well and our kids get the thing and we get the promotion. We love to worship God. We want to worship at the act of his hand, but not of his heart. The call of the psalmist is to worship God because of who he is. I'm going to invite Rachel up. I'm going to bring to a close. We're going to take communion in a second. But I want to invite us to worship this morning. You were made for this. To reflect the glory of God to the watching world. Like my neighbor with the gator outside, that everyone that would drive by your house, they would say, there is Luke, the worshiper of God there. That's where he lives. And when my life's falling apart, they would know, oh, you can go to him. Oh, he's connected to something greater. Not that I'm just Luke the LSU fan or Cowboys fan or the blue team fan. I'm a fan of them too. But I'm a worshiper of God. To bless the Lord by obeying him, by worshiping him, by giving him the ultimate worth. All in, everybody worships. That we would move, my prayer, we would move from having him at the margin to the center. Here, kids, this is why I want you in here. I want you to help your parents with this. I want you guys to have a worship service in your homes this week. If you're families and you have kids, if you're a single person or you get your empty nesters, or I want you to have a worship service. I want you to read a couple of psalms, and maybe play a song or two. If you're talented enough and you can bring out a musical instrument, anybody know how to play the lyre in here? We should, that'd be great. That's what David used sometimes. But this is what I think would be powerful. Even in my own life, I have allowed the things of life. The liturgy of my life is not as a worshiper of God. This week alone, I've gone to several sporting events. I've taken my kids all over to practice and I've done my job. I'm, I'm a professional who works for God. And yet, yesterday in Starbucks, I'm reading over this and tears just come to my heart. Not tears of shame, but just how much God loves us. That even when we fail miserably at this, God is so gracious to us. This week, everybody worships. I want you to pick a day, look at your calendar. I'd love it to be your normal rhythm that once a week you're going to have a little worship. Take five minutes. When my kids were little, we used to do this, and somebody would take up the offering. Somebody would do the announcements and tell you that we want you to fill out a connection card, and we're not going to hassle you or bother you. Someone would read the scripture, and someone would pray. Had a little worship service in our living room. Dads, the greatest legacy you could leave is not the money and the cars and the stuff. It's that you would lead your kids in worship to the, to the only one who deserves it. The only one. As a matter of fact, Scripture paints a picture of the end. That we're going to stand before the Lord one day. And all the things that we did in the bank accounts and the houses and all the stuff, they're not bad. 
they're going to burn away. Nothing left. The things that are going to remain are the things that we invested into the kingdom of God. It's just going to be the people. He's enough, friends. We don't need any other reason. He doesn't need to meet any of our conditions that we can think of. He doesn't have to prove his power by answering your prayer this week. He did that when he created the universe. He doesn't have to prove his goodness to you by removing your doubts and answering all your questions. No, he proved his goodness by his care and sustenance of everything. He didn't need to prove his kindness and love. He proved that to us on the cross. Greater love of no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, and I have called you friends. We should worship and praise him even more than the psalmist because we see the love of God displayed through Jesus. We have literally tasted and seen the love of God poured out through the life of Jesus. This is what we're going to do in communion. It's this great reminder, and it should prompt just this incredible praise that we're remembering his death. This is what we do when we gather, and we take the bread, and we dip it in the drink. We partake of it, and we remember his death. We remembered the horn of salvation. We remembered the love of God poured down. Maybe you're in this room and you're not a believer. You're like the psalmist. You're looking forward. You've not tasted and seen that he's good. Today would be an incredible day where you really begin to worship. Where you push all the chips to the center of their table and said, okay, Jesus, I'm on it. I've tried all the other things. I'm all in. You'd step across the line of faith. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you got some bitterness in your heart that you're holding out on worshiping God because he didn't do something you thought he would do and, and, or, or someone hurt you. So maybe they were even in a church and they hurt you and you're like, well, this is, if this is who God is and I'm not, listen, worship him anyway. Worship through responding. Let me pray for us. God, we bow our hearts. We bow our heads. We bow down. Literally, worship, we bow down. We get low. We rightly size ourselves and rightly size you. That the Bible's not about us. This life's not about us and our dreams. Lord, it's all about you. The stars now, the sun that's up in the air, declaring your glory. The skies proclaiming the works of your hands. The sea creatures and all the depths and the birds soaring in the air. And the trees that line the roads that we drove here on. The rocks that surround even this place. The foundation on which this building was built. All praising you. This chorus of praise to the God who created it and sustains everything, whose name is worthy, the only one worthy of our worship. Lord, would, you rightly, would we rightly size you and rightly size us today? Would you do in us that only you can do? Would we get on our knees? Would we weep and confess? Would we hug a friend and ask for prayer? Would we stand with hands lifted high? Would we join the chorus of everything around us worshiping you? As we take communion, we're so thankful that you who knew no sin became sin for me, for us, that we might in exchange become the righteousness of God that we can sing without fear and without shame and without sin, condemning sin, because we've placed our faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, you do what you need to do. I'll be in the back. There's a prayer team in the back. Communion servers are here. Let's not let our worship be clanging gongs and noisy cymbals. Let's let it be true worship. Do what you need to do. You come when you're ready.